Good heavens, Wayne. You're at my house today. You came all the way out to Poolville, Texas from Irving, Texas. And uh, it is another episode of Good Heavens. How are you today? Um, I'm doing good, Dan. Good heavens, I found you. <laughs> it's like finding an, a planet in the outer solar system, That's isn't right. it? Yeah. I live so far you're, away you're from... You're kind of out beyond the edge of the Metroplex. <laughs> My barn is kind of uh, orbits Dallas-Fort Worth at a very long distance away. Yes. <laughs> it does. It's hard to find me. You need a satellite to do it. Um, we Speaking of all that, we're going to be talking about Pluto today. Your favorite. Yes, I love Pluto, and it's been so exciting uh, in recent years since 2015. The New Horizons uh, mission has, uh, I did a flyby of Pluto, and we get to see the pictures and see what they discovered now. Yeah, that was launched in 2006. Right. It was January of 2006. Yeah. It took nine years Uh to travel 3.6 billion miles. I think I heard, I read recently, it was the fastest satellite. It, it, ha, it has the record for the fastest traveling satellite we've ever made. Yeah, the fastest spacecraft. Yeah. And uh, so it was going so fast, they had no way to slow it down. Okay? Right. So they had to get ready, and they had to just hope that everything would keep working and the computer would keep up and everything. They were They were approaching Pluto, and they didn't have far to go. And the computer started having problems. Oh. They had to reset their computer and get it all up and going again before it actually made the flyby. And see, well, they well, they, they do the flyby, and the spacecraft has to uh, amass all this data all at once in a short time because it does the flyby in just minutes. And then it takes hours and hours and hours. It took them months to send all that data back to Earth. Mm-hmm. It took most of a year, over half a year, after the flyby for NASA to get all the data from the spacecraft. Wow. So it traveled <clears throat> 3.6, billion miles to get to the planet at a ridiculous rate of speed over nine years. So if you're planning a trip right. to Pluto, folks, the fastest <laughs> you can expect to get there is about nine years. So pack well. <laughs> right, and it's a, it's uh, once you get going that fast, the flyby is pretty uh, pretty sudden. Yeah. So, but but so we, you know, th- this is all the science is great, and all the discoveries are are good. But um, what is often lost in all the excitement and all the scientific data is what what in the world does Pluto have anything to say to us, if anything, about God, the Creator, about Jesus, about Scripture? What where does Pluto fit in? Uh, to a to a Christian worldview, how does a scientist uh, or anybody how how can we think Christianly? How can we take thoughts about Pluto captive to the obedience of Christ? Right, and we'll try to work some of that out today. That's there's a lot of mystery surrounding Pluto, both in how and why God created it, and both in how and why the science is what it is about it. But you have some scripture you want to read from the prophet Isaiah about this, and I think it's I think it's perfect. It was, a good, it was a good choice. Go ahead and read that. Right. So this is kind of a, makes me think of the surprises in scientific discoveries. You know, when you see something new, like you've never seen before. Dan, I remember I used to do presentations sometimes when the only thing we had to see a picture of Pluto was this terrible little sp- picture that looked like a little speckled dot. Yeah. 
and you blow up a speckled dot, and it doesn't look very good. No, it looks like a it looks like a, gr- a pixelated graphic coin from uh, from uh, Pitfall Harry. Right, you've seen it. So, <laughs> it. This is all that we had for years and years, and it's really exciting to me that finally we get to actually see Pluto up close right. from this flyby. So anyway, Viva la resolution, right? That's right. Yeah. So anyway, this is from uh, the Book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. This is uh, Isaiah 44, verses 24 and 25. It says, This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretched out, stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. And I like the verse just before that, verse 23, the prophet is talking to the heavens. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Yes. <laughs> shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. And I know you and I both know from watching the New Horizons news unfold, there was cheering and shouting and clapping when people right. saw the pictures for the first. I mean, there were people that were crying. They were like, yes. oh, my gosh, this is right. amazing, you know. And so so it's really weird that, you know, it's not weird, but it, I think the joy that we have about discovering Pluto, it doesn't, mm-hmm. whether you're a Christian or not, it, every every successful space mission to Mars or to Pluto or to Jupiter or to if you look at the Juno space probe or, or uh, uh, Cassini to Saturn or, you know, lunar probes or lunar landings, people cheer. Right. They're like, whoa, look, Mars. Or, my gosh, look at Jupiter. It looks like a Salvador Dali. Or right. People are dumbstruck. And just the, the only response is like what J.R. Tolkien called a catastrophe. you know, where there's like tears and you're right. like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know this was going to work. And now, oh, my gosh, it's working. Look at this. Look what yeah. we found. Right. So the, the people at NASA go through one of these catastrophes every time they do a successful mission. They do. And there's great video. If you ever want to watch, just get, look up anything on NASA when they like land something or when they yeah. get the first images of something. There's tears and hugging and yeah. high fives. And yeah, that. it's fantastic to and, watch this. And well, just recently... This is kind of an aside, but just recently, the poor little uh, poor little Opportunity rover batteries died out, and it, it passed away. I guess as a robot does, it doesn't work, and it got stuck on a ridge, and the, it was full of dust and hadn't been on since last June. And uh, people in social media, I was following this for a couple of days. People in social media were like writing poems and crying, and and there was all yeah. kinds, of, <laughs> kinds of outpouring. Right. Of, Thank you, Oppie. His name was Oppie. They called him Oppie, <laughs> and all this stuff, you know, because he looks like Wally from from the, <laughs> yeah, the, the movie. Pixar movie. Yeah. So everybody's kind of like thinking Oppie is kind of like a Martian Wally, you know. <laughs> but it was amazing how emotional people got over right. over this thing. But but I think that connection is because of what Jesus what the word says here that when you, you shout for joy oh heavens and shout for joy people on the earth because the lord has done it these are god's creations and that's why we have joy in in the discovery of these things but pluto what i think is and you know this too when they first saw the image what was the what was the thing that stuck out to everybody on the first picture of pluto there was a giant uh plane i guess from the from the observation point that looks like a heart yes yeah and so the the interesting thing is to me is that Pluto got its name from the Roman god of the underworld, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I have a right. story about uh-huh. that, but 
some girl in Oxford, a school girl in Oxford, her, her grandfather was an astronomer who knew people. Mm-hmm. And she she heard the news and said, "Hey, Grandpa, how about we name it Pluto for the god of the underworld? Because all the other planets are Roman gods and Greek gods, or whatever." Mm-hmm. And he thought it was a good idea, and so uh, the name stuck. But it's like now we see a heart on the planet. It's almost like the planet is saying, "Nope, wrong name." <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. the the way we describe planets, the way we describe stars, the way we describe the universe, <laughs> there needs to be a, the right kind of language yeah. to describe it. And that's what we're getting into today, the, the kind of language that people have tried to use to describe what Pluto is. Yeah, we should use a word that's more like the word surprise or, you know, kind of like that you catastrophe. Word. Yeah, that's a good word for, for Pluto, except it's too long. I would think uh, I would think something like Paul in, in uh, Paul's. We could name the planets like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. <laughs> And surprise! And it's surprise! The last, it's the last one. Yeah, uh, right. shout for joy, or we just call the last planet joy. You know, yeah, you know, because it's got a heart on it. But but right. instead, we went for you know deceased, you know, defunct Roman gods, especially one of the underworld. And to me, I'm like, I think <clears throat> the heavens need to be described with the right metaphors. But this is part of the problem with Pluto, Wayne, isn't it? That we are have been since 2005, 2006, we've been trying to figure out what is Pluto. Yeah, there's been a uh, controversy over the definition of planet. Yeah. And why did this come up? Well, the reason it came up is really because they started discovering so many objects out beyond Pluto. Mm. Pluto was always thought of for a long time as out at the edge of the solar system, and like there's nothing else out there. Was the That was the assumption for a long time, even for scientists. They assumed there wasn't hardly anything else out there, but... There's lots and lots of objects out beyond Pluto, lots of small uh, bodies out there. And there's some of them, there's even one or two of them that are comparable to Pluto in size. Mm -hmm. Eris is one of them. It's actually Mm -hmm. bigger than Pluto. And it's out at about 60 AU. It's way out there. So if we, the the argument was if we made, if we kept Pluto as a planet, then our solar system would go from like nine planets to... A hundred planets, yeah, or, given or more or more, yeah. given what we are now discovering about all of these things. But um, briefly, before we get into the definition of planet, I wanted to talk about uh, how it was discovered. I think it was really re- briefly. We could, yeah, a guy named Clyde Tombaugh back in the 1930s. He mm-hmm. was a farm boy, but he had a real big interest in astronomy, kind of like you and I, Dan. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, but he actually built his own telescope. And he, I wonder how how many hours he took to looking out there in the in the in the blackness of space before he found this. But he found Pluto. Yeah, he was uh, he was a he lived in Kansas, mm-hmm. built his own telescopes, made his own drawings of the things that he saw. Yeah, and he had sent some of his drawings to the Lowell Observatory in Arizona. Right. Now, Percival Lowell was a guy that was obsessed with Mars. Mm-hmm. So with his money, he had money, he could do this. He built an observatory and was looking for Martians and canals on Mars and everything. And Lowell died in 1916, but never found exactly what he was looking for. But Lowell hypothesized that there was another planet out beyond uh, Neptune, mm-hmm. given the motions of uh, some of the things that were going on out there. They, they suspected this. So Clyde actually sent some of his drawings to the Lowell Observatory, and they're like, hey, that's pretty good. You want a job? And so he packed up his uh, packed up his 
thing and and you know like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz I don't think we're in Kansas anymore and went to Arizona <laughs> yeah. and uh he ended up at Lowell Observatory studying photographic plates of the stars right and on the in late January early February of 1930 he was looking at through something called a blink comparator and it's basically like two plates put together under a microscope and then there's a switch or something that makes makes the plates blink Kind uh-huh. of like film, it's like, like a movie, from switching to, from one to the other. Right. And if they're identically lined up, you can see any little small nuance of light, whether it got dimmer or brighter, right. or, or it was moving. Right. And so he went through slides and slides, literally looking for a planetary needle in a starry haystack. And one night he found this tiny little ink blot that had moved. Uh, right near the star in the, in, the, in the constellation of Gemini called Wasat, mm-hmm. uh, which is a double star. I like to think of it. It reminded me of the Super Bowl commercial years ago. Wasat! <laughs> <laughs> like Pluto was going by it, just waving at us. <laughs> but uh, but he, was, he, he didn't find it through a telescope. He found it through a microscope. Right. Which is really interesting, uh, I think, that you can use microscopes and telescopes <laughs> to do astronomy. <laughs> Um, but that's how he kind of came about. He was he was a nobody from Kansas with a desire to. Uh, yeah, kids, you're, st- look, you're looking for a really tiny dot on a big photographic plate, and you're trying to see a very small movement of it. Yeah, yeah. From one uh, plate to the other. Right, and he so he found that just I mean, <clears throat> very easy to miss. Very this, easy to miss, yeah. and you need you need a special kind of patience and eyeballs to look at that. So we now talked, we talked about something like that on another podcast once. Yes, Dan, we did. I remember uh, that the, the this program on weird stars. Weird we, stars. We talked about Henrietta Henrietta Leavitt. Yeah, and her photo, her her, photo plates. her ability to look and classify. Yes, with with razor sharp precision. Now, so what were the problem with Pluto? Is well, let's, let's talk about briefly what it's been. It's been a planet. It's been a non-planet. Mm-hmm. It's been a dwarf planet. Yes. Uh, I don't know. Did it ever reach planetesimal? Is uh, that dwarf- no. Okay, so it wasn't ever that. It's a Kuiper Belt object. Uh, yeah. And it's a trans Neptunian o- object, object or trans Neptune so object. Kuiper. Uh, actually, the original term was Edgeworth Kuiper Belt, which gave credit to two astronomers. But that term has kind of fallen out of favor, and the 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 term astronomers use now is trans-Neptune object. Trans-Neptune. I sometimes say trans-Neptunian, but that, it's, yeah, either way, either trans-Neptunian. Way. But anyway, so it's been, it has had all these statuses. It's had quite a resume in terms of an object in space, right? Yeah, <laughs> planet, right. no planet, dwarf planet, trans-Neptunian, and uh, Kuiper Belt object. But it's mostly made up of uh, ice. I think I right. understand it. It is as the average surface temperature is negative three hundred and seventy degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah, something very, like that. Very close to pretty cold. Zero. So yeah. you want to you want to dress warmly if you're on your way to Pluto. <laughs> um, the thing I like about it, and this is really interesting to me, and I think this is one of the problems with the definition. So imagine you have a dinner plate. We talked about this earlier. The dinner plate is sitting on your table, and you come down at your dinner plate with a fork or a spoon to scoop up some peas. The angle at which you bring in your silverware, <laughs> relative to the plate, right. is the angle at which Pluto orbits, goes through our solar system. If the solar system is your dinner plate, right, right. your spoon or your <clears throat> fork coming down on the plate is about the angle at which uh, Pluto goes around our sun. Is that correct? That's right. So the, the dinner plate is like the orbit of Neptune, 
the you, edge of it. You, yeah, you could say. And then Pluto has a seventeen seventeen degree tilt in its orbit. Yeah, so it's coming down at an angle, and it, part of its orbit is just a little bit inside the edge of the dinner plate of, of, for Neptune's orbit. And then you add the, add the weirdness of the Sun's axial tilt. The Sun is tilted yeah. at about six degrees. Yeah, six seven, uh, six seven relative yeah. to to Neptune. Okay. So that so we have a seventeen degree tilt with Pluto. We have a six and a half six degree tilt of the sun in regards to Neptune. Right. Not everything lines up perfectly like a perfect flat dinner plate. Things are right. spinning in their yeah. own little way. So Pluto's got his own little personality out there doing his own little spin, and it takes two. I didn't know this till recently. It takes two hundred and forty eight, two hundred forty seven, two hundred forty eight years, Earth years. For Pluto to go around the sun one time. Right, and it's actually in a resonance with Neptune. Neptune goes three orbits for every time Pluto does two. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty cool. Three, two resonance. So let's get into the definition that currently exists about a planet and see how that fits with with Pluto. um, It's kind of a weird definition. People have been arguing about it and are still talking about it. (laughs) It was it was the same year that Pluto uh, took off from Earth. The, the, from the, twenty six. Uh, the New Horizons spacecraft yeah. took off. Twenty oh six. There's an organization called the International Astronomical Union, mm-hmm. and they make uh, decisions of, about definitions of different kinds of objects. So they came up with a definition of planet, and uh, a lot of people. Uh, don't like their definition, astronomers and otherwise. But anyway, so the first requirement of the definition for it to be a planet is it has to be in our solar system. So that's a problem, Dan, because we now know there's thousands of planets orbiting other stars. And how far do you want to extend our solar system? Yeah, so we don't, there's no official definition of an exoplanet. So then, uh, it has to be in our solar system. That's one requirement. The next thing is it must orbit a star. It cannot orbit a planet, and that makes sense. Um, and it cannot be a star. So if you have a star orbiting another star, that's not a planet, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, third requirement, uh, it must have a spherical shape. Okay. Now, this is really an assumption about how it forms, and I don't think scientists do that well with how things form, really. Yeah, but we're... There's a lot of assumptions about this. But mm-hmm. the, if it's not spherical, then it's it hasn't been uh, pulled into equilibrium by gravity. So smaller objects are not going to round themselves off uh, like a, a bigger object. Well, like, it's interesting. Just an example I, I was learning. I learned a few days ago that star Regulus yeah. in the constellation of Leo mm-hmm. is shaped more like an egg or a football because it spins nearly at the rate at which a star should break up. It's spinning so fast that it's an oblong shape. Yeah. So it's interesting how you talk about, you know, spin rotations and velocities and things, how Mm -hmm. they, how they affect the shape of a planet. So, so it's interesting here. We're now we're talking about mostly spherical, um, in our solar system, yeah, how, how spherical is spherical enough? Yeah, and uh, and what is what do you mean by inside the solar system? You know, so so we're seeing that, that trying to get scientific definitions of a planet is uh, somewhat of a subjective endeavor. Nothing wrong with it, but it's, there's just not a lot of hard science going yeah, into the well, language. Yeah, and it, some of it is very uncertain. So how big? Let's say you have a rocky object 
how big would it be in order to be spherical? Well, there's no real hard and fast number on this, but scientists would say something like 500 to 800 um, miles in diameter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you... Something like that. Right, but a ballpark that's, figure. That's just a ballpark number. So and then another another point in the definition is that a planet has to have cleared other objects away from near its own orbit. This one is a big problem because, okay, now this one, it kind of stands to reason from this particular point that Pluto wouldn't be considered a planet because there's lots of little objects around Pluto's orbit. Mm-hmm. They're called Plutinos. Plutinos. Now, and that's a, I, I just learned something today. New fact, Plutinos. And there's another group of objects just a little bit outside of Pluto's orbit that they're called Cubuanos. What? Cubuanos. That's the first time I've ever heard that word. And Where the, is that coming from? The object that the New Horizons uh, spacecraft flew by after Pluto, we'll get to that. That object is one of the Cubuenos. Where does that name come from? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I, I, anyway. These, How do you spell that? Scientists come up with a, a weird names. I'm going like to have this. to look that up. Anyway, um, so there's lots of little objects close to Pluto's orbit. And so that's one reason they would put this rule in there. It rules out Pluto. But guess what? Earth has objects close to its orbit, too. Yeah, we're, we're putting them there. There's near-Earth objects. Well, not, not, not the just ones, saddle, not not the ones, ones we put there. Okay. But there are objects that sort of orbit around Earth's orbit. Didn't know that. They, I actually did not know they that. They orbit inside and outside Earth's orbit. They have this very weird motion that sort of switches modes. They so have two modes of motion, and they switch back and forth. I wonder if the definition includes... Uh, Saturn's rings. I mean, does that mean that Saturn's cleared out its its? Well, that's space? a good one. Yeah. What happens? Have the have the. What about Jupiter? Jupiter yeah, it's got sixty eight moons. Jupiter or has seventy the, moons or something. Uh, um, lots of thousands and thousands of objects. Right. At the L four and L five Lagrange. The points. Lagrange points, Trojan uh, Trojan objects. The Trojan uh, asteroids and the Greeks is mm-hmm. what they're called. Mm-hmm. So the. The L4 and L5 Lagrange points are 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter and 60 degrees behind yeah. Jupiter, right in its orbit. Well, it hasn't cleared away objects. It actually collects them. It collects them. them. Right, so right. how could we what make, is, make this the definition? It, what, Jupiter wouldn't even fit it. What kind of housekeeping must a planet do in order to qualify? So there's been a lot of criticisms of this last point about the definition. But we see, I think the point that we... we want to emphasize here is that sometimes you hear, we hear this a lot, I hear it a lot in talking to people that are skeptics, science has disproven the Bible, that some sort of objective, physical materialism, uh, physical sciences have disproven scripture, etc., whatever. But here we are right in the middle of a cutting edge controversy, if you will, about the use of language and descriptions when we're talking about physical things. And, right. and so there's an object out there that's spherical, 3.6 billion miles away, very cold, mostly ice, uh, weird orbit. Um, that something's out there, but it's interesting how we as, as, as uh, scientists, as people that are scientists, are struggling. And, and not just scientists and experts, but citizen scientists. There was a lot right. of, there was a lot of uh, amateur astronomers that were involved in the vote 
on how to define a planet, if I understand that correctly. Yes. And uh, so, so there's this. And <laughs> speaking of that, uh, in 2006 and 2007, the California and New Mexico state legislatures passed bills to keep Pluto's as a planet. Right. <laughs> so it's <laughs> legally on the books in New Mexico and California that Pluto is still a planet. When you go to New Mexico, it's still a planet in California. So so, so uh, the definition of planet is is still kind of uh, mixed up. Right? It is. And so my point is that that science science is it's it's a mix. It's not just physical things in a right. laboratory. It's right. not just telescopes and microscopes. Mm-hmm. There's philosophy and linguistics and language and metaphor and writing and description. There's a lot mm-hmm. of humanity, as mm-hmm. we say in our podcast. There's a lot of human things right. in science that are not physical things. Right. right. Here's yeah. the here's a brief definition from the New Mexico uh, legislature. Uh, they said uh, that, that uh, New Mexico, the 48th Legislature Joint 54 House Memorial declaring Pluto a planet, and March 13th, 2017, Pluto Planet Day. <laughs> <laughs> it was in March of uh, 1930 when Pluto got its name officially, or I think it was in May in 1930. But um, they say that whereas New Mexico is home to world-class astronomical Observing facilities, such as the Apache Point Observatory and the Very Large Array, the Magdalena Ridge Observatory and the National Solar Observatory, and whereas Apache Point Observatory, operated by New Mexico State University, houses the Astrophysical Research Consortium 3 and one half meter telescope, and they go on to say that, you know, here's, here's, here's why we think we get to call it a planet, um, now, therefore, be it resolved by the legislature of the state of New Mexico that, as Pluto passes overhead through New Mexico's excellent night skies, it be declared a planet, and that March 13, 2007, be declared Pluto Planet Day at the legislature. So, <laughs> so here, here, Dan, you have a kind of interesting little uh, conflict. It's sort of a conflict between the 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 authority of a state government versus the authority of science. Mm, mm-hmm. How much authority should science have? Yeah, should scientists tell us how we should live and what our values should be? Exactly. And science is d- doing great at discovering things, and I'm all for praising NASA for the great accomplishment. They do great of, work of what they do. They do fantastic work, but. The meaning of it all is something that scientists sometimes really trip over. Yeah. And scientists, science sometimes treats things like they have more authority than they really do, yeah. it seems to me. They can't, they can't operate <clears throat> in a sort of doctrinal fashion about what it means. Yeah. They can tell you that Pluto has ice on it, how far away it is, how long it takes to orbit the sun, take wonderful pictures of it. But in terms of what it means to human beings, they the, science cannot unpack. Like, for example, the question, why is Pluto there? You could have a mechanical explanation of how maybe this planet developed. But there's another explanation for that as well. Why is it there? It, God created it to be like this. God did it by himself. Uh-huh. He put it there. Right, uh, and it looks like he put a shape of a heart on it, you know, to right. like I love you, right? Yeah. <laughs> but science, science cannot deal with questions of of ultimate meaning, mm-hmm. and no no amount of how did Pluto form takes the place at all of God having created Pluto. It it doesn't replace that right. because if you you know this, if you replace God 
then all your natural forces become causal agents. They take on the properties of a divine creative being. Your mathematics, your forces, your laws take on the idea that, that they can create out of nothing rather than a... a right. Uh, so, you know, science is good at kind of being, uh, learning to be objective and doing objective analysis of facts and that's that's all good. We need that absolutely, so that we figure out the truth, and we don't get because uh, our our judgment t- tends to get foggy, and so we kind of we need logic and reason to get us through the facts absolutely, and and sort out the details. But um, once you've sorted out the details, you have to make a, a a human judgment call. You have to you have to make a decision about what you're going to believe, right? And you don't have to decide that this is uh this rules out a creator there's other ways of looking at things right uh science has a tendency to make some assumptions that go against the biblical mindset like okay so for example pluto when they this happened in the voyager missions as well dan years years ago back in Mm -hmm. the late 70s and 80s that when they got the first pictures of some of the moons in the outer solar system they expected them to be kind of boring because, okay, out there, they're small objects. And uh, most of these moons are similar to Pluto, as a matter of fact, in mm-hmm. the outer solar system where they probably have a rocky core and then a lot of ice. It, there's a lot of ice that make them up. And Pluto's like that. Well, they sort of assumed that they would be kind of boring and uninteresting because a small object cools faster. And after billions of years, and they believe the solar system is billion, four and a half billion years old, mm-hmm. the, there shouldn't be any interesting processes going on. You know, there shouldn't right. be geology changing it and or, or anything. And so they, they, they were surprised, and they had to adjust their theories because there's things like Europa that's erupting water, and, and Enceladus is er, erupting water. And uh, Io is volcanic. Io's volcano is very active volcanoes. Mm-hmm. So it has volcanoes that never stop. Yeah. And then there's other objects that show all kinds of geology on them, like mm-hmm. um, Ganymede. And, and Pluto is in that very active category. It mm-hmm. shows all kinds of geology on the surface. Yeah. And one part of its surface is covered with a lot of nitrogen ice and another part is has methane ice and part of it is water ice and the mountains you see on pluto is water ice mountains i've heard they've been likened to the 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 size and the stature of the of the rockies yeah yeah um that's it's fascinating i was uh on twitter talking to a science journalist uh her name was laura Kornfeld, and she's very involved has been very involved in the the pluto ever since the the mission she's given a talk on um, she gave a talk in 2008 at the Great Planet Debate that was held at Johns, Johns Hopkins University in, in 2008 at the Applied Physics Lab in uh, Maryland. And uh, I found her on Twitter, or she found me, and, and we were tweeting back and forth about uh, Pluto in a very lighthearted manner. And she said to me, and I like this, she tweeted, she's like, I do like to think Pluto is deliberately holding back its secrets, then slowly revealing them and surprising scientists by how planet-like it really is. And then I, I joked with her. I said, you've just discovered a fourth planetary law. <laughs> Pluto's playfulness, you know. Yeah. But but really, what what as we as human beings, we look at these things, there does seem to be this joy of discovery, this playfulness, this 
the, the wonder and the joy, as Isaiah said, shout for joy, O heavens, because the Lord has done it. And so we delight, whether we recognize Jesus or not, we delight in looking at these things because that's the way God intended them to be. Mm-hmm. He built in the surprises for us, and that's the way he does. He comes to us, and he surprises us, the creator of the universe. That's right. In Luke 4, the creator of the stars and the planets and Pluto and all the other things that are out there we haven't even yet discovered, the one who made all that stuff comes down into a to the town of Nazareth, goes to the synagogue on a, on a Sabbath and reads from the scroll in Isaiah. The very fingers that form the heavens take the <laughs> right. scroll of Isaiah and read right. good news to the people. Right. You know, the, the Lord has sent me to... to to release the prisoners and to bind up the to, uh, to 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 give joy to the downtrodden, um, but in a secular universe, it's all death and destruction. Right? There's no meaning mm-hmm. out there. There's no purpose. Mm-hmm. Everything is crashing together. Everything is exploding. And so I think that for naturalism, it's hard to be able to say this is all beautiful and wonderful, but there's no point to it. It, mm-hmm. it seems in like an incongruity to be able to say wonderful. It's so wonderful. We spend money exploring it. It's amazing. It's fascinating. It's all these things. But yet, it's purposeless. Mm. There's no design in it. Mm-hmm. There's no. That just seems like a dichotomy. That that. I mean, naturalism can't solve that problem. But with a creator, with Jesus, with God as the creator, that it makes sense that this stuff is enjoyable to find. It makes sense that we spend money to to look into it. That we build museums for it. We take pictures of it. And we we're ultimately fascinated with everything, because that's the way God intended the heavens to be. Right, and we there's a long process to figure out. Uh, gravity and motion of the planets and all the science that went into being able to get there yeah. to, to make a, a, a rocket and a spacecraft that would make it out there. You know, Dan, they had to uh, they had to uh, figure out how to aim the spacecraft at Pluto so that not only would it not miss Pluto, but it, so that it would actually fly by another object after Pluto. And that they had to they had to aim it before it got to Pluto, so it would get to the other object, which is Ultima Thule. And we will talk about we'll Ultima Thule. We'll get to that. That's coming up. That's so. coming up. So this has been a great chat about uh, Pluto, and it was on. Uh, it was just a few days ago. It was the anniversary of the discovery um, in 1930? It was on February the 18th of 1930 when it was officially recognized and discovered which was just a couple of days. What day is it today? <laughs> it's the 22nd, 23rd, 22nd. What day is it today? I need to go back and see. It's the 23rd. So it was uh, just about five days ago uh, that, that, that this uh, anniversary that this occurred. So look into it and get involved with I have a couple of books I wanted to recommend. Um, um, one of them is D- Deva Sobel, I think, Adava or Deva Sobel, called The Planets. She has a wonderful chapter about each of the planets, their discovery, their history, how we've come to know them. Uh, it's uh, Deva or Dava, D-A-V-A, Sobel, S-O-B-E-L, called uh, The Planets, a great little book. And then uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a book called The Pluto Files, which he uh, catalogs the dis- from the discovery into the demise of its status as a planet. It's an interesting book filled with all kinds of information that details Pluto's demotion from planetary status. Right. Any closing thoughts on Pluto, Wayne, that you want to... And well, there's a lot more, uh, a lot of interesting things on Pluto and its moons. For a long time, we, we thought there was just one moon of Pluto. It's called Charon. It's a large moon. And uh, if you think of uh, Pluto and Charon, it's like a dumbbell set. 
the they rotate around a point that's like a third of the way between them. Mm. And so they they look like they're orbiting each other. This, the, there's a center of gravity is between, between the, the two points between the two objects. So, and um, but there's other moons, smaller moons out beyond Sharon, and uh, scientists have had have been completely stumped in figuring out the origin of these other moons. And so it's just like Isaiah says, he, God humbles the wise. We That's ha- right. We have our models of how things work. And then we have the actual encounter with the things that are really out there. Right. So, for example, Dan, you you know that there's a theory that our moon came about from a collision with Earth. Right. Well, they tried to explain the moons of Pluto the same general way. Mm. The idea was that uh, some object would come along and hit Pluto and... Sharon would form from that collision, and then the other small object, uh, small moons beyond Sharon would form after that collision. Sort of debris from the collision came, became these moons. Hmm. So they tried to work this out on a computer, and the, it just doesn't work. No, it, it does. There, there's they a... couldn't. They couldn't find a way to make all of these moons come out of sort of be, form in a related way. So that as Sharon performs, the other moons form and come into resonance and they're in circular orbits they're in about the same plane and the last one is called hydra hydra mm. spins so fast it's much much faster in spin than anything else they've ever found wow and and the it's very difficult to explain that so even, kind of even cool. a collision wouldn't wouldn't make it spin this fast so you future astronomers out there if you want to pick up the mantle and the charge to discover how God put uh, Pluto's moons. Right. There's a in lot orbit. of mysteries in, in, in this outer solar system region. And all we have is a few pictures, you know, and, but there's lots of data that has been collected from New Horizons. And, and that's, scientists haven't, will be a long time wading through all that data. And the, it's interesting the word data comes from the Latin datum. Right. Which means something given. Something given. Something given. And it's interesting, I think, when the astronomers, I always hearken back to this, when the astronomers talk about data from space or data from right. a mission. I think of the psalm, Psalm 19, that day to day, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the skies, shows his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Display knowledge. Datum. God is giving us the information about this stuff. (laughs) And I think it all points back to him, as as the as Romans says, that the created order declares God's invisible attributes. And I think Pluto is one way in which God demonstrates his wisdom, his knowledge, his delight to interact with us, and his playful sense of humor, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but certainly his creative wisdom, his power, and, and, and kind of extending an invitation through what he has made to examine it closer so that we can basically not just know everything there is to know about the methane on Pluto, but to know ultimately who Jesus is, which yes. is the point of the heavens. They all, right. they all point to Christ. They're all made by him and made for him, as Colossians says. All right, so we will wrap up this episode of Good Heavens. Our next podcast, we are going to be talking about what Wayne said just a few minutes ago, the strange object out beyond Pluto called Ultima Thule. What's beyond? What is beyond? Good Heavens, we will find out next time. Good Heavens.